Welcome to JW Community Podcast, where my mum is basically just blabbering on about nonsense. Thank you, Phil. Hello and welcome to another episode of JW Community Podcast. I have my brilliant uh, general with me again this morning. Good morning, Lara. Good morning, Louise. How are you? I should say good afternoon, shouldn't I? We... Good afternoon, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a beautiful time. sunny day here today, just finishing. Yeah, it's gorgeous because uh, we're in spring and summer's coming, so it's absolutely lovely. Yeah, you're a bit confused there, Lara, because it's coming up to winter. I don't, you just don't seem to get it, do you? But never mind, we'll let you have that one. <laughs> so <laughs> we've got... um. A great podcast today about an event that you attended, which was the National Apology, um, and you found a guest. So would you introduce our guest, please, Lara? I would love to. Her name is Rita, and Rita is today our Canberra correspondent, although she lives in Yass, which is about 20 minutes away. Hi, Rita. Hi, Lara. Hi, Louise. Nice to be here. And great to have you on. Um, and the great thing about Rita is that we've got lots to talk about today because we're going to talk about the National Apology. And what's good about Rita is she's got a media background so she can keep us on track. Good. (laughs) But also um, she's been in the XJW community for quite a long time, so she understands a lot of the things that we've seen. And she's got her own story. And so I, I invited Rita because what we're talking about today, the National Apology, is really relevant to her family background. So there might be um, a, a bit of her family background that we need to cover, Rita, which I'll allow you to do as much or as little as you like. Sure. So, Lara, before we kick off with the interview, can you set the background for us about the National Apology, what it is and what it was intended to do and where it came from? Yes. So uh, Australia is doing this for a number of things. For example, we had a National Apology for our Aboriginal community. And the Prime Minister at that time was Kevin Rudd, and he said sorry for the way that the white man, I guess, had treated the Aborigines when Australia was first discovered and for much of our history. And that really set the scene for apologies where they were relevant to a large community. And this apology, we actually found out about by accident. And I don't know about you, Rita, but we happened to see an ad in the paper. How did you find out about it? Um, from from the group, the um, XJW group, and I think you started a an apology group. Yes, yeah, so, and yeah. and yeah, it was it was, on, was from it was the paper. On, yeah, you got it from the paper, and I got it from the group, which came from you, obviously. Yeah. Okay, so the way that we found out about it, there was an ad in the paper. And it was just a little ad that said that there was a national apology and that there's going to be a ballot so that if you wanted to attend, you had to be part of the ballot. And we were really surprised because I think, Rita, you've given a submission to the Royal Commission and we gave a submission to the Royal Commission, yeah. And um, we thought that we'd be approached and that didn't happen. Instead, you had to go into a ballot. And that meant that we could attend if we were successful in the ballot. So, yeah, I started that group so that others would know about it and so that they had a chance to be in the ballot. But I'll just give you a bit about the background. So it was managed by the Attorney General and they actually had a website and a consultation team and it was really relating back to our 
Child Abuse Royal Commission. And because of the achievements of the Royal Commission, they wanted to give a tribute because they found so many victims and survivors and their families and supporters. And that courage that they displayed during the commission helped to create and is still helping to create a culture of accountability and of trust trust in children's voices. And so it was really a recognition to um, say sorry to those victims and survivors. And if I just quickly give you an update on the Royal Commission, not just for that which applied to us as Jehovah's Witnesses or former Jehovah's Witnesses, but in total I've got four statistics. So almost 17,000 people contacted the Royal Commission within their terms of reference. They heard from almost 8,000 survivors of child sexual abuse in over 8,000 private sessions. And that's when we had a session literally face-to-face with a commissioner. They also received about 1,350 written accounts. So, for example, I wrote in an account of my story. So that was one of the 1,350. And they referred over 2,500 of the matters to police. So our police are really busy as a result of that. (laughs) So that was the background into the National Apology. That's Great. So it all it all sort of stemmed from the um, Australian Royal Commission, the CARC, not the R. Yeah. So so both yourself and Rita won a place in the ballot, did you? Yeah. yeah. Rita, do you want to just explain? Uh, yeah. Well, I um, after I saw saw the um, link on the on the group in the on Facebook that you put out there, I just thought, yeah, I'll have a look at that, and I I looked, I read up a bit, and I thought, well, I'll just I think. If I remember correctly, you had to give a, a brief description of of events or why you felt you should, you know, be going or something. Is that right, Lara? Is that am I remembering it correct? They had they had allocated four hundred places to survivors and four hundred mm-hmm. places to advocates, mm-hmm. and so uh, you had to describe what your situation was. So yeah, when when you oh. submitted your ballot, you had to yeah. then describe where you fitted in. And and I basically described that I had not myself been um, abused by a, anyone in the Jehovah's Witness organisation sexually. However, I'm the mother of, of a victim, a survivor of sexual abuse in the organisation, and I did receive um, unjust treatment as the mother of, of a victim and to silence me. I was disfellowshipped and therefore I felt that my child didn't want to come, uh, didn't feel the need to come rather, that um, I still felt like I wanted to be, I, I had suffered and my child had suffered, my family, entire family had suffered and I felt that it was appropriate for me to to be there as a representative and on behalf of. And um, I wasn't sure what what I would receive back, but they sent me a, an acceptance in the ballot that I was going to be in the Great Hall and I felt really quite overwhelmed by that nothing like recognition and acknowledgement. And and so that's where it all started. And and then Lara, you know, through this this group in Facebook, um, we just managed to connect with other people. And thank you for all that hard work that you did doing that, Lara. And we were able to organise something before the day and and after the day. And it was it's just been, yeah, an amazing experience. Is this a good time to ask you, Rita, about your your own background story then as as Lara said as much or as little as you want to talk about sure sure if it's appropriate to do it now yeah I'm happy to um so 
I was raised a Catholic and um, after I was in my mid-twenties, a friend of mine had converted to Jehovah's Witnesses and she used to come and visit me and I was at home with children and, you know, always interested in, in God and, and things about him and, and it or whatever. And um, I was not really interested in the religion as such, but I was interested in life and why people die. And after having children, I thought I don't really want to have to face anyone I love so much passing or being separated from them through death. And so when I was shown the scripture in, I think it's Romans, if I remember correctly, about inheriting sin and how, you know, they, they you know, we die because we inherited sin, but then the promise by God that we have everlasting life was really, you know, that really got me interested, the thought of living on a paradise earth. So long story short, I took a few years to convert. Um, I ended up with a broken marriage, which partly was that as well, but, you know, there were other reasons for that. But anyway, so the marriage went down the gurgler and I ended up a single mother with three children. And in the meantime, my mother became a Jehovah's Witness very quickly and I sort of made it easier for me then to keep studying and, you know, moving in that direction. And I got baptised at the age of 31. And um, then my husband, Robert, who I've been married to now for 22 years, we were both, he was a pioneer servant and um, single, and I was a single mother, and we became very good friends for six years, and we ended up falling in love and getting married as Jehovah's Witnesses. We got to know a lot of people in the organisation and this particular family that lived around the corner from us had children similar ages to my children and one of the children who was about 16 at the time molested one of my children and and did so whilst another child was having a Bible study in the house. And so when I found out, it came out very quickly, it only happened the once and and um, I dealt with it straight away. I went to the welfare officer at the school because I somehow just had this feeling that if I spoke to the elders first, and I don't know why I had this feeling, but I thought if I speak to the elders first, I don't know that there's going to be anything done about it or I just didn't feel confident or have trust in them. I'm a survivor myself of sexual abuse and not within the organisation. So I... I was 11 to 13 I was molested by a so you know I thought I was doing all the right things and being in this spirit paradise in God's organization and the elders are so loving and caring and you know condemn such things and and they were really flogging that horse about the Catholics and and how they were handling sexual abuse so badly I I felt that you know, I had to trust them and that, that I would be, that nothing would happen to my children in that area, that we would be fine. So when it did happen, it's interesting that I just suddenly had this feeling that I couldn't tell them. So um, I did speak to to the um, authorities, in a sense, the school, because I knew there was mandatory reporting and I thought, well, that takes it right out of my hands. And I, I reported the person and the mother of this person said to me in part of our conversation when I approached her and said, it appears that this has happened because of something my, my child said and it's been heard by others and I believe this has happened. And she said to me, yes, well, it doesn't surprise me. It's very likely. And I thought, so you have a child, a, a teenager, a 16-year-old son who you're saying this to me about and therefore what do you really know and why wasn't something done to protect 
my child. So anyway, we we ended up, then we invited an elder over, the only one that I felt that had any kind of empathy because he had children and grandchildren himself. And we invited him to lunch and then dropped the, the bundle on his lap, so to speak, and told him what had happened. And he was just, it was almost like you could see this this doom and gloom come across his face. It was like, oh, my goodness, what, oh, do I really need this? You know, it was horrific. And um, so he said, well, look, I'll, I'll definitely have to talk to this, you know, um, presiding overseer and we'll have to discuss it and I'm so sorry this has happened and leave it in our capable hands, we'll deal with it and we'll be in touch. The next thing after that, maybe a few days later, because we're going back quite a few years now, this happened in, I don't know, 90, 97 or 98 or something. A few days later, he turned up in his suit with Bible in hand with the presiding overseer who was just the most revolting person. I can, I, can, I just can't tell you how much I detest this man. And one of the first things he said was, uh, yes, I'm very sorry to hear this about this incident. Now we have to be careful with your child because it's like a virus. You know, once it's, it's, it's happened, it's almost like passed on to the next person. And I looked at him and I thought, so you're basically saying that now my child could become a pedophile? Is that is that what conversation we're having here? Is this what you're comforting me? And um, and then he said, now we're going to deal with the perpetrator and, and the family. You must not speak to anyone about this. And I said, well, okay, so how are you going to make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else's child? Because obviously there's a problem. And he said, look, you just keep doing what you're doing, you know, leave it to us. Just remember this with gossip. If you talk to people, it's like if you were to rip a pillow open that's full of down feathers, you will never be able to put those feathers back in and that's gossip. And I'm thinking that it's like that's more important to you than he didn't ask me how my child was doing. He didn't ask me if there was anything they could do to help me. They didn't ask me, you know, they, there was no genuine love, empathy, care. Concern. It was just about management, information management and containment. Yeah. Control, definitely. Um, so I felt totally dissatisfied with that conversation, um, to say, you know, the least. Um, and nothing much was done or said until possibly maybe a week or two later and one of the elders, and I can't remember which one, uh, rang and said, look, we've spoken to the person. It took a bit of time but he finally admitted it, confessed to it, and we're just um, obviously he wasn't a baptised publisher so that was his little loophole in the whole process and he was part of a very prominent, well-known family. Yeah, so he he was – so. This is what happened. Because we weren't allowed to speak about it, we were told very sternly, do not talk about it. You have anything to say, you come to us. We will manage this. So because we couldn't speak to anyone and we were fairly new in this congregation, there were a couple of sisters that had issues with me because they thought I was chasing brothers and therefore they were gossiping about me. And so they were kind of marking me anyway. It wasn't very difficult for the family of the perpetrator to demonise me and get all the love and support for the brother. Yeah, yeah. So people were saying, oh, what happened to so-and-so? You know, there seems to be, oh, you know, that family, since they've moved in here, you know what she's like, and they've created these problems for our little brother. And, you know, they 
some of the you know congregation might have thought that he had a puff of a cigarette or something and I made a big you know they were really yes. playing it down yeah so so this was a very young congregation too full of families with lots of young children and I heard that that this brother this perpetrator I won't say brother because he wasn't baptized and he's filthy anyway so this person um, because the ministerial servant conducting book studies or field service groups or whatever did not know the details and because he wasn't his fellowship because he wasn't a publisher they were still letting him read parts in in the book study or offer prayer or and so when I heard that my husband and I discussed it and my husband would ring up the elders and go what's going on you know why is he offering prayer and stuff like seriously this guy is a dirty pedophile and you're letting him oh well we'll sort that out you know and then we'd walk outside a shopping center or something and find this person with um another jehovah's witness friend's little sister holding hands or something you know so i know this is very long-winded but it's got so many layers to it that it just shows how sick they are in that organization Anyway, so I was doing canteen with the primary school that my children were at and and there was a mother that said that her children had had someone expose themselves in a stormwater drain after school one day and that they were a bit worried about this, you know, teenager that was obviously exposing himself. And I, I said, oh, and suddenly my radar went up and I thought, because we lived in the same area, I said, look, you know, did they give a description? And she said, oh, he's probably about 16, you know, and it was just, flashing himself at them and so I I just got really suddenly I felt that I needed to do more I needed to do more than just have gone to the social worker and spoken to the elders Um, so I made an anonymous phone call to the police and naive me thought I'll be safe doing this and I put a hypothetical to them and I told them about my situation and the likelihood of the person being the flasher possibly being the same person considering we're in the same zone area um, and the police said oh well you know you know if you don't tell us specifically I said oh it doesn't matter and and that was it that night <laughs> there was a knock on the door and two detectives turned up from the um, sexual abuse team with clipboards and folders, and they said, you're Rita, and you rang up this afternoon, can we speak to you? And obviously, they can track your number. So I was a bit, I've watched a lot of police shows, but I didn't think that far ahead. That's really interesting that they took it so seriously, that rather than just dismissing it as, oh, this is a hypothetical, they, they clearly knew it was like one of those asking for a friend type situations, yes. but they knew it yes. was serious enough to pursue yes. it because there was somebody that was dangerous compared to the elders who'd said, don't tell anyone. Yeah, yeah. And and just let it go away. Stop annoying us. You know, that's basically the feeling we got. So, look, it was wonderful actually to be able to sit down and, and just let it all out with the police because... There was validation, there was genuine concern, there was believing, and there was respect. So with that discussion, you know, I basically explained what happened and the detective said, and my husband was with me through all of this, so, you know, if I if I have a few details out of whack, they're not far off track. Um, and, and the detective said, look, 
he didn't say that it was the same person. They couldn't prove anything. They felt that there was a strong likelihood that this was the same person that was flashing that did this to us. However, he said, with these sorts of things, if this is what's happened to your family member and this is the same person flashing, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of other stuff going on underneath. Holy cow, really? Yeah, and and that really got the, the red flag going for me because, I'm, as I said, I'm a survivor and I know that if it's not dealt with, this can go on for years and there's usually stuff in the family. And, look, the family was a very – the mother was a single mother. She was a woman in her late 50s. Um, she had older children and then she had two children later in life. Then she separated from them and left her congregation in Sydney with the two other children left her husband, came to Canberra and was in the congregation um, in Canberra and, it, you know, eventually they become they became settled in Canberra and it was interesting because everyone felt that there was something odd about this, this family and her oldest, oldest son, the older brother of the perpetrator, he was a servant and had married and moved to Canberra. So that's why they were in Canberra. They were following one of the family members. And I never really trusted him. I never really felt – I felt that he was too touchy-feely with a lot of the congregation members. And and But because he was sort of a bit charming and, and, and always joking around, a lot of things were let go rather than – You override your intuition because you think he's a brother and it's Jehovah's organisation and he's a nice man and – I'm just being paranoid. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just got, I'm very strong about feelings, you know, and and I guess I was wired up that way from an early age and I just got this feeling from him and and I definitely got a feeling from his, his mother and, and two younger siblings um, who were the same age more or less as my children. So when when the police became involved, they said, do you want us to talk to the elders? I said, yes. Because they said, what are they doing? So they spoke to the elders, which this is where a big headache for them. Because now I've brought brought in the authorities, right? And they're having to answer to the police. (laughs) And they don't like doing that. So so they started talking to the elders and they the, the police were very communicative with us. They came back to us with everything and kept an eye on us and checked on us. They were doing what the elders supposedly do. Um, the elders didn't. We actually became ostracised, ignored, marginalised. The perpetrator was invited to all the barbecues and p- picnics and things, and, and we were not invited to anything. You know, all these things, the way we've been treated, we're, we're just marginalised. Um, but the police were great, and and if the police went to them a few times because... We'd say we saw them with, or we saw him with another child, or I heard he had a kid on his lap at the book study group. So the police, the police were happy to keep going back, and they said to us, they are getting the elders are getting very annoyed with us because they keep telling us that what they do is a regular weekly counselling, and they're keeping an eye on him and monitoring him. And and when we go back to them and say, well, we've heard that he has kids on his lap at meetings, and the elders are really getting frustrated with us. And I said, they said, do you want to take this further? Do you want to have him charged? Now, this is where it, it got a bit difficult for us because 
I know what it's like to try and tell the adult world as a child. Yes. About this sort of stuff. And it's terrifying. And I didn't reveal about my sexual abuse to anybody until I was about 33. So I, I was like, okay, so tell me, this is with the police. The elders, of course, had, had no interest in us. And the, I said to the police, if we were to have him charged and, and go to court with this, um, what can we expect? And the detective said, look, we are with you 100%, first and foremost. However, be aware, he's 16, he's got no other criminal records at the moment. Um, your child will have to give evidence and will have to be examined and cross-examined in, in the way they do, and it will be horrendous. Oh. And... It could be worse than, than the incident itself. So we are not telling you not to, but we want you to be aware of what, you know, could happen and how, how difficult it could be. So we actually sat down and talked with our, our child and said, well, you know, we believe you. We know, you know that we, we will not let this happen to you again. You are not in trouble. You have done nothing wrong. And if you want to, when you grow up, and you're a bit bigger and you feel that you need to deal with this, we'll support you and we will do it with you. And our child was like, okay, yep, no, that's fine. And, I mean, I've he's, he's had counselling and all sorts of things. So, and being monitored and the teachers were good with that too, you know. So we we felt that that was the, the best that we could do at the time. And and my child's an adult now, and we've openly talked about things, and there doesn't seem to be a need to to address it at the moment. Um, but the, is, the thing is, our adult child knows that if if they want to, they can do something about it. So when um when all this happened, and the elders started to get really fed up with the police. I didn't know that there was a witch hunt then going on against me. And the only time I found out about it was when I got called into the second school by the brother of this perpetrator, who, who is a servant at this stage. I don't think he was an elder yet. He was a servant. Now, he called me into the back room and said, it was pretty bad what happened between so-and-so, his brother, and your child. And I said, yes, it was. It was horrendous. Because he'd never apologised or anything to no. me. Right? Totally pretended it didn't happen. So here he is calling me into the second school to talk to me. And he's, and I knew I had a gut feeling it was going to be bad for me. Yeah. And he said, um, now, with everything that's happened, it's come to my attention that you have been saying slanderous things about me. Huh. And I said, really? I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about, to be honest. And first of all, I shouldn't have been alone with him in that second school according to their rules anyway, which if I was smarter and less naive and less trusting, I would have just said, I'm calling my husband in. But I didn't. I just, you know, I didn't think about it. Um, so, And I said, well, no, I, I haven't. And he said, well, I've got witnesses that have said that you have indicated to them that you believe that I did something to my brother 
that was similar to what, and I said, you're not being specific. What are you exactly saying that I said? If you've got two witnesses, what, what have they said that I've said? And he said that you've implied something that made them think that, that you know, indicated that I, I might have a problem too. I said, look, I don't know what you're talking about. However, because I was told I wasn't allowed to talk about it, but there have been a couple of sisters that have picked up that there's something not right here. And all, you know, and I said, and I have warned a few sisters to just watch their children in the congregation. However, however, I said, if some gossip has come out from other people and someone has picked up something that I've, I've said and they've interpreted that from it, I said, I'm more than happy for you to bring those witnesses before me yeah, and I will clear it up. And I will clear it up because that's not what I intended if anything was said. And, and I certainly don't believe that. And he said, right, so you're denying it. And I said, of course I'm denying it. He said, all right, okay, well, we'll leave it at that. The next day he rang me up and he said, you know that conversation we had yesterday at the Kingdom Hall? He said, um, do you mind if I come over and just tonight after work and just finish it off and we'll just clear it up? And I went, yeah, yeah, sure. He turned up that night. And my husband and I answered the front door and he turned up with two elders in suits, no Bible in hand. They walked into my lounge room and I just remember them feeling like they were giants. I, I just had this visual like that they were taking up the space, the entire space of my living room. And they came in and we went to sit down and they said to my husband, you get out. And my husband, yeah, and my husband said, uh, no, no. And they said, you must get out of this room now. We're talking to your wife. And he wasn't prepared to go. And here I am. I suddenly started to feel sick, panicking. And and I just said, Rob, just go. Just go, please. And I thought because I, I, I knew this was going to be bad. So to please me, he left. And here I am in the room. And, and the brother of the perpetrator who was sitting opposite me had the biggest smirk on his face. And I said, you didn't tell me you were coming with anyone. And he just looked at me and smiled. And basically I was asked, did I say something that sounded like this or whatever and very, very vague and broad. I denied it. They said, right, we're having a, a case against you, a judicial committee hearing against you. Really? Yeah. Yep. So I knew I was done because I knew that I had done nothing wrong, but they had enough to get a judicial committee case against me, so I knew they had something that they could use to do what they wanted, and that was to shut me up. So so there we go. We, we had the date, and I went to the hearing, and there were the three elders, and basically they still wanted me. They, they Look, it went for three hours. I felt like I was being grilled, like I... I have to say that after the whole event, I fell into a heap and I said to my husband, I feel like I've been abused sexually. The same feeling has come from from being in that committee because it was abuse. It was abuse of power. Three men sat with one woman. One woman. One woman. And one of them and being I've a relative nothing. of the person that had abused your child. 
that's so wrong on so many levels. I can't even begin to describe it. I'm picturing the Spanish Inquisition or witch I'll tell you, or the witch hunt. The yes, witch hunt. That's what I'm picturing. So, so none of the Louise, th- sorry, can I just say, this is typical though, right? Even though it sounds horrific, we actually know so many stories like this and readers just encapsulated what it's like. For a typical person, they've done nothing wrong, they feel like they've done the wrong thing, they're protecting someone, and they're pushed out. And this is why, Rita, um, it's important for you to have an apology. And you didn't get an apology from the JWs. No, no, no. And, And, you know, you still hope for that, and it will never be enough now. But this is why you were deserving to attend the national apology. Yes, and and you know, with all of that that's happened, the apology was, I, I felt that it was a really respectful way to try and give a little bit back because it's never enough, as you said, um, but it's not really the government, you know, like let's not forget who the perpetrators are and who the people are that got me into that room and terrorised me for hours and disfellowshipped me and ostracised me and put me through where I've developed intestinal problems and I started to get anxiety and all those things again. It was not Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister. It was not Julia Gillard, our previous Prime Minister, who started all this. It was not. It was these animals. I call them animals because they're just, they have no natural human kind of love and respect. So, Lara, can you begin to explain the process of the day when you went to the National Apology. Yeah, and just picking up on what Rita just said, she's 100% right. And I think Rita will come back to that when we talk about the day because it was so lovely for our government to apologise. But as you've just said, um, they weren't the bulk of the problem and particularly in your scenario. But let's talk about the day and then we'll come back to, to finish off and tell people about what the result was for you and how you felt at the day, on the day and how you feel now. But let me just take you through a couple of things that we did. So one of the nice things that happened was, although we had to apply, apply for the ballot and a lot of people missed out, which was a real shame, but one of the nice things was that we physically got to be together. So, for example, I came up from Melbourne and they paid for our transport and they paid for our food and they paid for our hotel room if we were coming from interstate or overseas. And we were physically able to be with our friends. Um, So, for example, Rita and I held hands when the Prime Minister delivered the apology, the official apology, and some others there were shaking and crying, and they were able to hug while they listened. So there was a lot of camaraderie, wasn't there, Rita? It was amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, it was about nine of us. Yeah, very bonding. Very. I mean, I feel like it was a very special bond that day. That's that's going to stay. Day. And we were we organised a dinner the night before, and I think there was about eighteen of us at the dinner. But we didn't great, just. Yeah. yeah, we didn't just close it out to XJWs. We actually invited others from multiple faiths. So, for example, there was a girl there. Um, by the name of Georgie, and she's recently become public about her abuse. She was abused by an Anglican priest, for example, and she had a support dog, and that support dog would help her emotionally 
Um, and she asked, can she bring the dog to dinner? And we were all thrilled to have the dog there, weren't we? Oh, yeah, it was a beautiful dog. Yeah. And um, there were two girls that were also travelling up from Melbourne that I'd met before because we did public speaking with a Jewish community. And one of them was uh, formerly Orthodox. And they came up together. Their names were the same, Dassie, um, D-A-S-S-I, Dassie E and Dassie H. And they drove up together in a camper van. So we had this, yeah, we had these stories. We had this beautiful camaraderie between us all. And obviously there's things that we have in common and there's things Mm. that are quite different. But we just, didn't we just physically, we just understood each other immediately. Emotionally, we just got it. So that was really nice. Sadly, it's one of those things that when you ha- when you know it, you know it well, <laughs> and that brings you closer. Yeah. yeah, like you just said about you and your son, you understand because you'd been there, so you knew how to yeah. treat someone who'd been there. And then yeah. it, in the morning, we had we were at different hotels, so we had breakfast at the hotel, and we would meet other survivors and advocates at the hotel, and we were, all got onto a bus, and we were transported there um, to the actual event location and the event location was at our parliament in Canberra which is the capital of Australia and on the way I actually met a guy who was um, I think he was 80 plus and he was an Irish guy who had been you know one of those kids that have been brought out to Australia when they were a child you know that that story is that is that what they apologize forgotten ones um, where they brought them out, like the the English kids that were brought out yes. and pretty much dumped in homes and that here in Australia yes. after the war. Yeah, he was Irish, but, yeah, it's the same thing. And there was a lady who was a social worker who actually connected them to their families. And I was sitting next to this guy and he goes, I wrote a book, and he handed me his book and it was about his life story, about how he came to Australia and how he then found his family. And, it, you know, it was nothing to do with the religion um, it was another institutional abuse that happened. But it was just a fascinating story. And then when we arrived, we actually saw one of the lawyers who works with our survivors in Australia. You've probably heard me say her name a lot. Her name's Lisa Flynn from Shine Lawyers, and she came with me to the Bringing Abuse to Light conference last year. You remember that, Louise? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the way in, we got a registration pack and we had these lanyards around our necks. So we had a green lanyard, Rita and I, and that allowed us to have a gallery seat in the Parliament House. And you know our friend Eddie, who you've spoken to a couple of times, he runs the support group. He didn't get a gallery seat, but he was out on the lawn. It's called Federation Mall Lawn. And so we were texting each other, we're here already, you know, we've found everyone, Eddie, and, um, you know, put, please put a post up to say that, you know, what's happening, Julia Gillard just got a standing ovation, things like that. We were keeping in contact during the day. And you got interviewed, didn't you, Rita? Didn't you get interviewed by oh, a reporter? Yeah, there, yeah, there were a couple of times there. I just I just speak. <laughs> and and if there's a camera pointing, I don't care. <laughs> but yeah, there were it was important. That was important yeah, that you got to speak. Yes, Absolutely. How, like everyone else, you've got a, a lot to say that people didn't listen to and that's the point, that you can now be listened to and people believe you, including our government. And, yeah, yeah, you got a couple of opportunities to speak to reporters. We actually had three stories that day, Louise. If you haven't seen the stories, you can Google the National Apology 
right. and I can send through some articles. Um, but we had to go through, before we actually listened to the apology, we had to go through a security check and it was like yeah. going, you know, on a flight, um, making sure that everyone was safe. And the other thing that made us feel safe was there were counsellors and social workers on hand and they were wearing blue. And so if anybody was feeling very emotional, and a lot of people were, they were able to just go up to someone in a blue T-shirt and seek support, which is what you did at your protest, Louise. Yeah, that's right. I was just thinking, saying that there would be people there that you could go and get a bit of help from. That's a great idea. It was awesome. So, yeah, so then the actual event, I'll talk to you a little bit about the event because we all collected together um, on some seats and, like I said, we sat next to each other and we were able to hold, ha hold hands during the National Apology. But first of all, there were a couple of events. So, for example, the Canberra Symphony Orchestra was on stage and this peaceful orchestra was calming everyone. It was a really physical calming exercise. Um, then we had an Aboriginal elder in a possum skin coat. Have you ever heard of that, a possum no. skin coat? <laughs> it looks awesome. It's, um, it's quite robust and very warm. And he did this ceremony with smoke, except for he couldn't use smoke, so I think it was chalk. Um, no, he it was, um, it was sorry, sorry, Lara, it was actually okra, ground okra, because uh -huh. I was speaking to an Indigenous Australian yesterday in a wine bar and um, I was saying about the sorry um, National Apology Day and how an Indigenous man had used the okra and he said, oh, no, no, I only use a very little bit because it's so expensive, it's ground and it's, you know, so it's ground okra. I, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but, um, yeah, it's to to release, you know, it's sort of like to blow things away. And again, it felt very calming. It was a beautiful ceremony to watch. And then there was um, like a, a small documentary on the screen, very short documentary, but then they crossed over to the House of Representatives. So the Prime Minister, the opposition leader and other politicians and viewers were in the House of Representatives and he delivered the apology in the House of Representatives. We watched that on the screen and then they physically walked towards us. So first they delivered it for the country and then they came and had a more private yeah, pr presentation for the 800 of us that were sitting in the Great Hall. So I think that's what people are interested in, Rita, because they didn't get to see everything that we got to see. So no. can you just e explain what happened when they mentioned the name Julia Gillard initially and why was she so important to this apology? Well, Julia Gillard really is, is well, she, as you know, she was our, our first female prime minister and she was the one that initiated the Royal, uh, Royal Commission into um, institutional child sex abuse or whatever the terminology is. It's such a long-winded sentence, isn't it? But um, she was the one that decided that something had to be done and thank goodness she did. So when, when Julia Gillard, and I have to say she looked fantastic, she looked younger than she ever has and she she looked very very moved and touched by by the affection that was shown to her and the actually probably the love that was shown to her for being so brave and determined to get this sorted out that when her name was mentioned and they showed her on the big screen the audience just she got a standing ovation and and it just went the clapping went on and on and you could see that she was really deeply touched and moved um and, exactly. and I think we all were yeah, that's exactly right. I think um, it was really um, 
what, what's the word? It was really, it was, it was something to cherish. The fact that we had a prime minister who, I think it was her final week that she was prime minister, approved this thing, which has changed so many of our lives, not just in Australia, but around the world. So for us, mm-hmm. we were really cherishing that moment and appreciating her um, for what she did for us. And she was sitting next to a lady by the name of Chrissy Foster. Now, there was mm-hmm. a, yeah, there was a photo in the paper the following day of them touching foreheads. Now, the reason why they touched foreheads, they had a very tender moment, is because Chrissy Foster is essentially our hero, um, yeah. well, the hero for the Catholic faith. And really, really she was the figurehead for the Royal Commission because mm. Chrissy and her husband, Anthony Foster, a very famous name, um, really spearheaded the Royal Commission. They got it really um, charged up in terms of pushing to make it happen for the Catholics, and we were able to ride on those coattails. Now, their story is they had two children. So you've heard Rita's story about her son, and they had two girls who were abused. They had three girls, but two were abused. One of them died as a result of committing suicide, and the other one was um, in an accident, and she really hasn't recovered from that accident. So they've lost a lot. Now, the worst thing that happened was a year ago, just a year ago, Anthony Foster, Chrissy's husband, lost his life. He had an adverse cardiac event um, and didn't survive. It was a sudden death and he didn't survive. So he didn't live to see this apology. He is is a hero and she is the heroine. So that's why she was so important. And we were very fortunate after the national apology, we went out onto the lawn where lunch was served and we actually got to meet her and there's a photo of us with Chrissy. And let me tell you, everybody wanted a photo with her and everybody wanted to meet her. So I feel that we were really fortunate to have that opportunity and we really appreciated the work that she did. Can you remember some of the other people that we met, Rita? I've got a list of them here in case you forget, but who can you remember? Well, I personally, I remember just before leaving the Great Hall, um, after the, the ceremony and everything, Jennifer Coates walked past and she was the commissioner I gave evidence to in Canberra. And I just had to go up to her and I, say, I said, you probably don't remember me, but she said, I do. And she, she said, I remember your face. And, wow. um, yeah, and she said, I remember from Canberra. But she, I just said, I just want to thank you so much. I said, it made, it made a big difference. Um, and, and um, people were just all – it was like being at a rock concert where you want to see the rock stars because they're the celebrities. And everyone that was involved in this, um, in whatever part, are very important and significant to, to us survivors and advocates because when, when the people that we trusted were just scowling at us and dismissing us and ignoring us, these people listened and – and almost in a way carried some of that hurt. And That's exactly yeah, right. Can I, can I add to that what you just said about Jennifer Cote, the justice who um, was the commissioner that you spoke to? I'll just quickly add to that. I saw her and I said to her, have you lost weight? And I didn't mean that in a derogatory way. 
I meant I could see on her face she looked stressed, like yeah. she'd had a rough time. And she yeah. said to me, yes, you know, it's happened. Um, thank you for noticing. And I said to her, I hope we didn't cause that. And she said it did take a lot out of me. But she yeah. said it was the highlight of my career. In fact, it was the highlight of all of our careers. So I don't know if you were there for that, Rita. Did you hear her say that? I didn't, I, I, I didn't hear that conversation, no, no. Yeah, so that but was that's amazing. The kind of, that's the kind of person she, I mean, I spent several hours giving evidence to her and whilst our so-called shepherds were not interested at all, she, you know, these people showed total um, disgust in what's happened in a way that, you know, it's like unacceptable, it's horrid, and and it gave it the worth of what it really is, you know, by by the way they behave towards people that had to give evidence and that, um, you know, you tell the elders this is happening and they look at you like they don't really get it. You tell you tell this these commissioners a worldly what's person, yeah, worldly. And, and they get it. They and and their response is appropriate and correct to the crime. Yes. Now tell me, who else did you meet, Rita? Because I've got a lot of photos of you smiling. And although we're talking about <laughs> something very negative, it was actually a really oh, positive was, day for these reasons. It was a positive so, day. And um, well, who did we meet? We met um, who was the the head the the oh, the the guy that was actually gave the findings and what was his name? Um, yes, Justice Peter McClellan. Yes, that's him. We 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 met him, and and he. These people just have worked so hard and yet they were so they, – they were handing out dignity back to us even though we thought they were yeah. the heroes. Yeah. So I'll just quickly you know? tell you how we met Peter McClellan and you'll remember this, Rita. We yeah. were busy eating lunch and someone yelled out, Justice McClellan. And I said, are you serious? <laughs> we turned around and craned our necks to see who it was and then – do you remember what happened, Rita? We stood up and well, ran. Yeah, we grabbed him. We grabbed him and, and had photos with him and pretty much shook hands and thanked him and, you know, and, and I think it was it Eddie that sort of, or Stephen, I think Stephen spoke to his wife to sort of say thank you to her for letting us, <laughs> you know, That's she right. takes so much time and, and, you know, takes so much away from her. But, you know, these people are just um, amazingly caring and principled um, virtuous yes. people, and and that's just the extreme other end of what we've dealt with in the organisation. I think he was really the highlight of the day. Apart from Julia Gillard and thanking her, he was really the highlight of the day. But there's others as well. Can you remember the others? Look, there's I, three I, I, I can think of. Well, Darren Hinch, but I, I'd just like yeah. to say that I'm, I met Scott Morrison. He came out our Prime Minister, and he's only been a Prime Minister for a short while. And I don't care what side of politics people are on. As far as I'm concerned, he did a great job. Um, I, I felt that it was a very difficult thing for him to do. He's a father. He's a he's a, a man who has his own religious beliefs. Um, however, I really felt that when I saw him, I just went up to him and I thanked him personally. I shook his hand and he looked at me and I smiled at him and I said, thank you so much. And it, would, it could have been any other prime minister. I would have done the same because that was – that was a big job they had to do. And he knew that people I, weren't going to be satisfied and happy, but he still had to had to take the the, the shouting and the, you know, um, and I think he did a great job. Darren Hinch, well, he's just Darren Hinch. And 
that senator is just, uh, uh, you know, he's always ready for a photograph and he's always got his hair in place. And it was lovely to be able to to thank him and get get to sort of say hello to him as well. Yeah, so I, yeah, I will explain who he is. Aaron. Yeah, first, so going back to Scott Morrison. So, you know, Louise, we're Australian. So what we do is we shorten words. Okay. So instead of calling you Louise, we just call you Lou. Okay, that's cool. And instead of calling him the Honourable Scott Morrison, right. we just call him, we call him ScoMo. Okay, right. You know, like there's what? J-Lo. Oh, right. <laughs> ScoMo. So I didn't see you do that, Rita, so I'm so glad that you met him because I happen to be with Eddie and Eddie said, I'd like to go and meet the Prime Minister. So I said, okay, I'll come along for this. And um, there's a photo of Eddie shirt-fronting the Prime Minister. You know what shirt-fronting is? Another no. Australian thing that we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, well, he not in a negative way, in a very positive way, Eddie took the opportunity to tell Scott Morrison directly, eye to eye, about the abuses of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he just explained to our current Prime Minister, and by the way, we also explained to the opposition leader who might be the future Prime Minister, and we also explained to the former Prime Minister, that was Julia Gillard, the three of them heard the same thing from us. And that is that the abuses of the Jehovah's Witnesses are about a third times worse than the Catholics. So the Catholics had... 4,444 abuse, um, alleged alleged abuses reported in the Royal Commission in a population of 5.4 million. And the Jehovah's Witnesses had 1,800 alleged abuses that were reported to the Commission out of a population of only 68,000. So they all heard that directly from us. And, in fact, Bill Shorten, he's the opposition um, leader, he invited us to contact contact him about it. And to put that into context yet again, he might be our future Prime Minister, inviting us to speak to him. Now, I'll just go back and talk about Darren Hinch because you wouldn't know who he is, Louise. But he, yeah, he was a media um, uh, shock jock. Do you okay. know the term shock jock? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was known, and probably still is known, Rita, as the human headline. Because yeah, he was, yeah, because yeah, he was so readily able to get himself in the news. Right. And he's now become a politician. Blimey. So, yeah, he's a senator. So, you know, well, you know how popular people now become, you know, president of the United States. Yeah, yeah, I get you. <laughs> so it started here. <laughs> right, okay. Thanks. So, <laughs> The good Darren, thing about well, Darren, Darren Hinch, yeah, go. go no, I was it. just going to say, Darren Hinch. Darren Hinch actually got into a lot of legal trouble because he um, named names of pedophiles. He hates pedophiles, and he got into legal trouble. I think he even did a bit of time in jail, if I'm not um, wrong. Um, well, that's exactly right. He, had, he, had a radio. he ran. He ran. He had his own radio show. He was a, yeah. a an announcer, a radio announcer, and and very popular, very famous. Um, and he married one of our actresses in Australia, Jackie Weaver. They, you know, so he had a lot of celebrity status, but he mm. just hated pedophiles and name names, and that's why he was so interested and involved in this. Exactly, he has got skin in the game. So even though um, he's not a perfect person, no one is, but he's a really important person because he really believes in it, 
And he now, as a senator, he is actually running currently a parliamentary inquiry about the National Redress Scheme. And we were actually, the previous week, invited to make a submission to that. So just in case you didn't know, Rita, I don't know how much you know about the National Redress Scheme. Do you want to talk about that or do you want me to talk about Um, it? You might, but all I know is that the Jehovah's Witnesses do not want to be... um associated with the redress they don't want to be a part of it because it could also have um, financial implications so basically they're not absolutely that's right they haven't said sorry they haven't signed up to the redress scheme they haven't apologized and um, accepted that it's actually happened so the national redress scheme is basically um, compensation and it's split into three parts there's a financial consideration for compensation if you have been an abuse survivor There is also an apology that you can get from the institution. And the third thing is they will pay for your psychological support. So there's three components to it, and you're exactly right. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower, have not signed up for it. Now, I know the government was trying to negotiate with them, but as of today, they still have not signed up. Now, many others have. They're one of the main religions, and the Prime Minister actually picked up on this. They have not signed up, and there's no excuse. So Darren Hinch has invited us to make a submission to the inquiry about the National Redress Scheme. So that's why it was so nice to meet him in person. Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of photos, me and him cuddling up. Yeah, I've seen it. It's a great photo. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll have to share it on this podcast on the Facebook part. So there's, there's two more people that I want to talk about that, Rita, you might not know about, but I know that you were there. But I'll just quickly explain who they were. One was John Ellis. And John Ellis is famous because the Ellis defence was named after him. Now, the Ellis defence has now been removed. It's a new piece of litigation. And if you look up Nicola and John Ellis, they're both lawyers and they've got their own firm. And what they were able to do was to ensure that there was a legal entity to sue. For example, they were suing the Catholic Church and they couldn't because you can't just sue the Catholics. You have to nominate a legal entity. So there's a piece of legislation. It's very interesting. We got to meet them in person and they were lovely. And then the other person I just want to quickly tell you about was Joanne McCarthy. Now, Joanne McCarthy is a famous um, newspaper um, journalist. And you probably know about her, Rita, because you were in media. Do you know anything about her and what she's done for us? Um, I've been out of the industry for a while and and (laughs) she's probably about but, but I, I did have an opportunity to send her an email and I did speak to her briefly um, on the day. I know that she's very busy and I know that she's been impacted on by this whole um, sexual abuse stories that she's had to cover. And I think I think she's quite overwhelmed in the sense that she's had a lot to do with it. She's written a lot of stuff. She's a very strong um, advocate. Um, but... She basically said to me, I, I'm just trying to recover at the moment. I'm exhausted yep. from the whole thing. And, yes. and, and emotionally had a huge impact. But, you know, you can imagine when you hear things that you, you end up hearing in that industry, in that profession, how, you know, you take stuff home and it sits in your head. Once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Yeah, and she – so the relevance to her is you're exactly right. She's done a lot of stories on – abuse survivors and those that didn't make it as well now what she said to me after I met with her just privately off to the side she said 
Um, cause I've contacted her in the past and I've said, can you please do stories about Jehovah's Witnesses? We have people who want to tell you their true stories, what happened to them. And I asked her privately, have people contacted you? And she said, yes, they have. And she said, the Jehovah's Witnesses are next. So I believe that more stories will be coming out, more true stories of Jehovah's Witnesses in her vicinity. And she can write about them as she did with Catholics and other faiths. So mm, I'm very mm. happy to say you can approach her if you'd like to share your story, which you've done already, Rita. Yeah, she has my details, so when she wants to, she can contact me. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Great. So um, the, the other thing was that, and that they're all the people we met, Louise, so there's a lot of photos and it was very uh, positive. Then there was kind of one final thing that happened for me, and tell me what you thought of this, Rita, there was the tea, the tree tying ceremony. Do you want to describe what happened with the ribbons in our bags and so on? Um, it was a symbolic um, opportunity that people could, could take to, I guess, commemorate the day or, or add their piece. Everyone got a, a ribbon in their – we got show bags, I guess they could – you know, if you've got an idea of what a show bag is, it's got some – merchandise and it had the apology scrolled up and you know it, it had a few special things that we could take home but it also had some ribbons and then so there was this shape of a tree I think it was a metal tree if if that's right Lara um out the front of Parliament yep. House in this lawn area and people could tie their ribbon on on the tree and and I guess for me I didn't think more than about just I was here today I gave evidence, I've written a few things, and now I'm tying a ribbon. It's trees grow, they spread, they, they grow fruit, you know, and people benefit from that. And I just saw it symbolically as every little bit that we've done is significant. It's some of them have been little steps. I just see all of us as being fibres in a cloth, all of us together different fibres making up a strong cloth. You know, that's how I see what everyone's contribution is. And and that was my ribbon. I just tied it up as one thread in this whole fibre, uh, this cloth. That's a good analogy. Never thought of it that way. Yeah, so the ribbon tying ceremony was really the end um, and we all had lunch together and we went off and did our thing. So that was that was the day. It was structured, unstructured, sad, happy, um, a really special event. Yeah, inspiring. I, I think it would be nice if in the future other countries have royal commissions and we're included in them, that they replicate our yeah. National Sorry Day. Definitely. It I was mean, well handled. Australia set the standard, didn't it, for the whole process. So to wind up, can I ask you, I'll ask you both in turn, Lara first, how... Did the apology impact you personally? I think to be able to say thank you in person to Julia and to Justice McClellan, they were the highlights for me. And Rita, did it make you feel validated? Was it a valuable ceremony for you? Validated is a good word, yeah. It was It was an opportunity to be with like-minded people um, um, and people who you don't have to say what you're feeling or how you hurt you are or how you've been impacted on. We all knew, we all knew 
we just had to look at each other. And there was a strong sense of unification, solidarity, and we all came together. And it's really important that somebody has said, you know, that was not okay. And we're saying it now. We're saying it's not okay. We're sorry it happened. We can't make things 100% better but this is something that we want you to know, that we genuinely care and are sorry. And coming away from that um, was about, for me, it was like, it didn't give me closure in a sense. I, I've, I've, ad I've adjusted quite well and I feel that I'm getting on with my life. I, I, don't, I, can, I don't consider myself having a lot of baggage, <laughs> um, if, if that's, you know, an appropriate term. But I feel that, for everybody together there that day, we all came together and we all accepted the apology and we all ended the day. It was a perfect sunny Canberra day. The sky was blue. Everyone was sad at the beginning. There was a lot of emotion, but everyone left there. Um, most people I saw were smiling, embracing. It was like a great day and it was, it was nationally um, acknowledged. The interesting thing, if I can just add something quickly here, is is it's quite interesting how I mentioned, because I, I do some volunteer work as well, and, and you know, people were saying, oh, how, how have you been? What have you been up to? And I, I just mentioned, oh, yes, I did some gardening and I mowed the lawn and I went to the National Apology Day. And people, people are still uncomfortable with it. It's interesting how... As much as we want to talk about it and bring it out in the open and the Royal Commission brought it out in the open, it is still a subject that people struggle with. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So to wind up the podcast, what I'd like to do is just draw out a couple of points that interested me from your story, Rita. One of them was when the elders told you not to tell anyone because it was gossip. I would urge people that being told not to tell anyone anything is wrong. That's how bullies thrive. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. It's our secret. And I have become like gob almighty because I really hate being told not to tell people things because I feel that it only ever covers up wrong things. So please, if you're yes. in any situation, not just an abuse situation, maybe a domestic situation, don't feel that you have to keep things secret. You don't tell someone, tell your best friend, tell a teacher, tell a social worker, phone the police, tell someone, tell your neighbour, tell someone, do not keep secrets because that is the absolute way to hide injustice. And the other thing that I thought was great was that the police actively found you from an anonymous phone call because they knew how important this was and they were also on the same page I think that not telling anyone is is absolutely wrong and I'm really glad that they did that and again I would urge anyone um, that's in any kind of situation that requires um, telling the police tell the police just tell the police just tell them they will listen and even though the, the realistic situation, like they said to you, might be that they can't, that the trial may be difficult and traumatic and you may choose not to go ahead to trial. I think just being listened to and being believed by an authority figure that's not the elders is so invaluable. Yeah, so as yeah well as absolutely. The, yeah, as well as the interesting account about the National Apology a Day, which, of course, not everybody will benefit from because it was unique to Australia. I think there are some really important points to draw out of this story. And I know 
that there are people in similar situations. In England, certainly, there's no statute of limitations. So you can go and make a report at any time. It's not too late. And you don't need to think, oh, well, it's just my word when I was seven against against their word. You know, sometimes the police have other reports from other people that you don't know about. And it's not just your word against their word. And in any case, there is a movement to believe the voice of the child now. And um, I just would urge people, to, for God's sake... Please don't keep secrets. It's awful. And all it ever does is benefit the perpetrators of, of whatever is being done to you. Um, so, Lara, do you have a song, please? I do. Um, and j just before I introduce that, Rita, thank you for coming and telling your story. And also thank My you for your volunteer work that you do with Lifeline. My pleasure. It's it's a real privilege. It really is, yeah. So the song was chosen for us today by our friend Stephen Unthank. And I said, what's the most appropriate song for the National Apology? And he said, well, what about that Elton John song? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. <laughs> Very good, because yes. <laughs> as I've already said, the only ones that didn't say sorry are the ones we really want to hear it from. And I've chosen this version, which I'm going to send you now, Louise, so you can add it to the podcast. Brilliant. But it's the version that was played by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra in Sydney. So it's very relevant and it's quite dramatic. So I'll send that to you now and I hope you enjoy it, Rita. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on and relating a deeply personal and difficult story, Rita. We really appreciate it. And um, thank you, Lara, for your account of what was an amazing day. And I will just say I was deeply jealous that you had a photograph with Judge McClelland. Very, very jealous. <laughs> yeah, but you got to speak to Angus. Come I did on. get, yeah, I know. And I can only ever thank you for that. You set that up and that was amazing too. <laughs> so thank you yeah. everyone for listening to another um, episode of JW Community Podcast. Seems to me, sorry, seems.
Thank you.